All right, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlin. We are on to another episode. Today, our guest is Randall Bowman. He is a 36-year-old indigenous business owner and woodworker. He is the survivor of a near-fatal car accident. And when you hear this story, it's just unbelievable to be able to survive that and deal with his addiction and overcome multiple overdoses and really just put together uh, recovery and come back from that is it is a story of resilience. It is a story of grit and determination. And I think Randall is just really inspiring and shows you that no matter what happens, you can change, you can get better, you can get stronger, you can get help, you can get support, and you can change. He has five wonderful, amazing children and some amazing friends and a wonderful wife. And it's it's just a great, great story. And I just really want to thank Randall for coming on and, and having the courage to share it. And I hope that you get as much as I did out of this story as well. And if you're getting a lot out of the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. I do read them. They mean a lot to me. I just read some new ones. It kind of gives me energy to keep going and knowing that this podcast is having a positive impact. I really appreciate it. And it helps people find the podcast so they can hear stories like Randall's. And you can follow us on Instagram at Addicted Mind Podcast. So check that out as well. Okay, stay tuned for this episode. All right, everyone, welcome to the Addicted Mind Podcast. I am with Randall Bowman. He is a 36-year-old indigenous business owner and woodworker, which I want to talk to you more about because there's a place in my heart for woodworking. And you are in recovery and you are Wiat of the Bear River Band in Ronerville Ranchera in Humboldt yeah. County. Is that correct? That is Did correct. I say that right? Yep, you got it. It's, it's the longest <laughs> reservation name on the planet. Okay, great. <laughs> All right, so I, I want to hear your story. But first, as I was kind of saying earlier, I, I want to hear about your woodworking. I want to hear about the work that you do and, and how you got into that. And then maybe we can get into your story as well and all of that. So let's yeah. let's jump in. All righty. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I grew up, my grandpa with a shop and stuff like that. And my first, my very first job when I was 17 was in a cabinet shop as, as a finisher. I was actually, I was 16. So I was 18 for a couple of years there before I was legally 18 there. <laughs> right, and, right, right. You know, I just, uh, I, I've done a lot of different stuff in my life and it's always come back. The, the woodworking stuff always came back. So after my car accident and getting on the, the real road to recovery, a more conclusive one anyway, I decided I would get back into it and what kind of turned into some side jobs aside from my the place I was working at turned into a full-time business and we just have been kind of running with it and luckily enough the way that I the way that I operate I take trees that have been felled for development purposes cuz here in Reno we're 40 uh-huh. 30 40 minutes from Lake Tahoe and they are they're building like right. crazy up there so when they felled trees if those trees aren't cut up into firewood, they're usually just kind of thrown in landfills or left in the, the forest someplace. So I pick up the trees, let them dry, and then I mill them into slabs. 
and whatever wow. furniture pieces I make, all the offcut pieces we make into small benches or cutting boards or things that we can raffle off different charity events to raise some money for the community. Oh, that is awesome. I mean, that, that yeah. sounds so cool. And and the reason I, I love woodworking is when I met my wife like 20 years ago, she helped facilitate at a community college, the woodworking department. And so we oh, would go cool. into there and, and build things. I didn't know anything about woodworking at all, but, you know, so I love it. And it's such a amazing craft. Uh, you know, I just got to see some amazing things built out of wood that you would never you never imagine. It's just so cool. It is crazy. And there's something very meditative about woodworking because it requires so much focus. Yeah. I think I think it's really helpful. There's a program that me and my friends are kind of tossing around right now where I want to try to get a bunch of tools together and do some classes with people that are either getting out of getting out of long term jail sentences or getting out of rehab so they can get into just making spoons. If you can make a spoon, yeah. you can learn a lot about woodworking just by making that spoon. Yeah, and there's something about doing that task that is so amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's great stuff, and it's 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 a, I wouldn't call it addictive necessarily, but it definitely takes over a ton of time once you get into it. <laughs> Which is all about recovery, right? Doing the things that are meaningful mm-hmm. to you, and and creating the things that are beautiful to you, and spending your time in ways that are are just good and and bring joy. So let's go back then and let's start to hear some of your story and kind of how you got to this place that you're describing now. Yeah. So I, I grew up on a small ranch out in the North Valleys of Reno for the first 10 years of my life. So we, you know, we raised pigs and slaughtered them. That's what kind of what we did. My mom was a barrel racer. My dad did ridiculously hard work. He was a, he ran a water well, he drilled for water wells. sorry. Right. Then moving forward, we, we kind of, we left there after some pretty serious, a pretty serious case of abuse for me, my brother and sister, not from my parents, but from another family member on the property. So right. we left there and as a family of five, we were, we were homeless for, i say a month, I think, until we got our trailer into the trailer park in which I spent the rest of my childhood, which was a, another right. pretty terribly low income neighborhood. But my mom was kind of the caretaker of the kids. So all of our friends were always around. And once I started getting into high school, stuff like that, picked up music and skateboarding. And early, early on, 10, 11, 12, I started, we started finding different ways to use me and my friends and it was so strange how much better I felt when I used, even at that age, yeah. drinking at 11 or 12 or doing amphetamines or, or whatever it was. And it didn't really yeah. make sense to me then. It was just fun. And, you know, we kept uh, kept moving on. And I started getting really serious about skateboarding. I ended up getting hurt. I got hit by a car and... About a year later, went to the doctor and they said, oh, well, you definitely need morphine and Xanax and Percocet. So, wow. <laughs> and I was, I was 16. So at the time, and it's I such didn't. such like a day, a time of brain development. You know, you're getting these hardcore really? narcotics when you're 16 years old and your brain is still just growing. Yeah. And it was, 
it was weird because I, I didn't realize addiction was a thing. I, I, I was convinced yeah. that I, I could get through it. I wouldn't get yeah. addicted because I was different. So after, after I got kicked out of high school and just went straight to work at 16, moved out of my parents' house and, and, you know, my, my parents maybe didn't do things very well, but they didn't have a playbook. You know, nobody, nobody told them how to do this thing that is parenting and, and growing up. They, they were kids when they had me. Yeah. And, you know, instead of trying to lay all that baggage on them, like my mistakes were theirs, I'd much rather talk about the fact that my dad is now seven years sober. Him and my mom are That's back together. Awesome. They, and they are the best grandparents to all five of my kids, all two or three of my brothers and four of my sisters. So. That's amazing. I love hearing stories like that because it just shows you that, you know, just hope is so possible. Like we can change, we can do things differently. Absolutely. And it, it's huge. And it's huge for people. It's huge for me and my brother and sister to see because my brother and sister didn't go the same path as me, but they, they still struggled with the same things. I mean, these are it's all in our epigenetics and things of that nature. It's it's encoded in us in, in one way or another. So by the time I was 18, I was, I was using every single weekend, every day I was selling, I was, I was deep in it. And I stopped at 18 for a girl and spent a few years kind of getting it together. And when that ended, there was a, I mean, my adopted brother's house, there was a, a home invasion that happened that really kind of took my psyche and just twisted it up. And wow. after that, <clears throat> luckily no one, no one was killed, but I was severely hurt. My brother's, my adopted brother's girlfriend was severely injured. And that, the paranoia was so out of control after that, because I went from being yeah. invincible to just always, because I was already an anxious person which is kind of why yeah. a lot of different drugs helped me because it kind of it took that edge off because there was no processing yeah. in, in my yeah, family. And, I mean, that, like that. that having an event like that, and if you're already an anxious person, having a traumatic event like that just kind of amplifies it and spirals it. Absolutely. So that, that was intense. So then that's when the drinking went from every weekend to every day to all day to all day with a couple Xanax at a time. And yeah. that's kind of how I tried to function through those four, four or five. I was like three years. You know, I got down to like 115 pounds. I was, I was a mess. So I decided I was going to get, get off of that and everything else. So I was on Lamictal. I was on Xanax. I was still taking painkillers. I was drinking constantly. So then I just stopped and wow. it was, it was really, I had several seizures from either the DTs, the benzos, the, the psych meds. Yeah. Really, really dangerous stuff there. And I, I spent that week alone. I figured I was just going to tough it out. I did not realize the severity of these chemicals. Yeah. And I, I learned very quickly in that week. <laughs> so, yeah. 
I, I, I think a lot of I think that's an important message out there because uh, people don't realize like how dangerous it can be with some of these drugs to detox and why you need Absolutely. professional help because it can get really really da- life threatening dangerous. I think that's just an important point to like, really make. No, for sure. And and when you're in the middle of it, you are so sick and so handicapped in that moment that you can't call for help. You can't yeah. do anything. You're physically unable to to move for the most part. And it's very, very important to seek help before you start making those big decisions. Yeah. And there's people out there that want to help you. I mean, that's Absolutely. that's so important. All over like the you, place. Like you, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, right. <laughs> right. And, so I did that. And then I ended up getting better. And at that point was when my girlfriend got pregnant with my son. And that, that ended up being really ugly when, when he was born, they, they did a lot of things that maybe they shouldn't have. And I wasn't able to see him. So that tore me apart. So I went off the deep end again and it was a lot of prescription pills. There was when the, the opioid epidemic really hit its peak when it came to, to prescribing and it was not difficult to get a bunch of 30 milligram Percocet anywhere you went. So I was, I was fully taking advantage of, of that situation. I was doctor shopping and things of that nature. And then I, I wanted to give, to give everything a shot. So then I went to rehab the first time I went to Michael's house in Palm Springs and I went in under the notion, look, I just need to get away from everybody for 30 days, 60 days. I'm not doing any of this therapy BS. I don't need it. <laughs> right. Um, so. But I guess I a part in. of you like knew it, but didn't want to do it, but knew it. You know, it's that that internal, yeah. like that internal yeah. wrestle that, you know, I think we all on some level have. Right. It's like well, I'm just going to do this, but you kind of a part of you knows like, I really need this, but I'm not, I don't really want it. And you, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's I'm so glad you hard. walked in there. So hard. And they, they were, they were great. I had a counselor. I can't remember his name now, but he, he, he cracked me. Oh, good. And it was, I, I learned so many of the tools that kept me alive for, you know, the, the six, seven years after that. Yeah. And I, Came out of there feeling really, really good about everything. Got back into um, trying to get custody of my son and was good for uh, two years, I think. And then I got hurt and tore my meniscus. Some guys started trouble in a casino on 4th of July. And I was not going to take the Norcos. I was like, no, one will turn into six. Six will turn into my life being ruined. (laughs) But then I did, and it did, much yeah. like it does every time, because yep. I'm I'm just not the type of person that can do those kinds of things safely. It's zero yeah. or 150 percent. No, no matter what it is, there's and, no in between for you. There's like you know, if I'm if I'm if I'm doing this, I'm going all the way this direction, or I'm going all the way this direction, and that's you know that's how you have to live your life. And I. I, I, I tried to lie to myself quite a bit because, you know, the, these yeah. things, recovery and sobriety and things like that would be so much easier if the narcotics didn't make you feel so much better. 
Yeah. That's the, that's the hardest thing to really wrestle with. And through, through that getting back into the prescription pills in custody for my son, I was given legal advice saying that like, you're probably never going to get custody. It's probably never going to happen. And at that point wow. I was like, then why, what am I doing here then? What am I even doing? And that's when I took the leap into heroin and then shortly thereafter intravenous use of, um, heroin and methamphetamines. And I attempted, it got really, really bad. Actually, if I can just kind of slow down before I jump into the San Francisco stuff, it got really bad. And I ended up having a full, very serious overdose in my parents' house at 30 years, 30 years old. And wow. or 29, sorry. And which is just, of all the, all the life I've lived and all the things I've done, that is the one thing that I do still is still, uh, makes me cringe because that my dad had to give me mouth to mouth and CPR for about oh. 25, 30 minutes waiting for the ambulance. And I was barely hanging on. It took oh two goodness. full vials of Narcan to even get me breathing. And wow. then I, we go to the hospital, get out of the hospital and then I overdose again that very yeah. next day. And then it was like, okay, well, what are you going to do? Are you just, are, do we have to just let you go and, and die? Because we can't watch you do it like this. Or do you yeah. want to get better? So then we set up an appointment to go up and spend 30 to 90 days in friendship house in San Francisco. And okay. I went up there and I had a, a huge abscess on my wrist and I had to get that drained up there and everything. And there's this whole commotion with this. I had to go get my prescription and they told me to grab a kid that had been there. So I did, or he said he had been there. I didn't know he had already caused trouble. And right. so when I left with him, they thought I had just left. Oh, and so when I came back, they were like, you can't come in. Like you left. And I was like, but you told me to leave. <laughs> right. So like, wait a minute, what's going misunderstanding. on? And, um, so then I was, I was homeless in San Francisco, just like that. Wow. And of course they called my, had to call my parents and tell them also that I had just left. And so my parents were like, we can't do it anymore. And, and rightfully so they, it was killing yeah. them. My dad was really, he had just gotten sober and if he was going to hang on, you know, they had to take a step back. Yeah, that's so hard. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, it's, I, you know, like you said at the time, it's probably so hard to understand, but, you know, with hindsight and some recovery under your belt, you, you can understand their position, but, you know, that's so mm -hmm. tough for everybody. At the time, I was like, wait, but what do I do? And they're yeah. like, I don't know. I don't know what you're going to do. And mm. um, so I spent the first seven days, I was stayed clean for about seven days trying to talk to the counselor at the at the at the rehab and it just wasn't going to happen so then i had to figure out how to be homeless in san francisco and i grew up in reno so i didn't know the city and it's a complete culture shock because reno is so different than most other places yeah um, so then i i started using again and it was 
uh, it was two years I spent out there homeless. Wow. And, um, I kind of survived by playing guitar in the train, in the BART station downtown. And I would just play guitar and sing because I grew up playing music and stuff. So I would survive that way. And, and that, wow. that city people, you know, people have been talking about it more, the, the issue in San Francisco, but that is literally just the very tip of the iceberg that there's so much, there's so much death and violence and, and just sadness in that city right now. It's that's very so heartbreaking. And I just imagine for you, I'm just trying to imagine that situation of just being there and, you know, the desperation, the uncertainty, the unknown, the, you know, here you are trying to get clean, but you can't get clean. And, and, oh my yeah. gosh. So that, that went for a while. And, um, eventually I, I, I decided I was, um, I had a, I had an overdose on the beach and at that time, my cousin had contacted me up in, on the reservation and said, Hey, I have a safe house. Do you want, do you want to try to get clean? And, um, after the overdose, I was like, yeah, let's, let's do it. So I went up there and dry detoxed for a week and a half and got a job with the, with the tribe up there in, in Humboldt. Mm -hmm. And at that point I had kind of started talking to my family again. So about 30 days in, I wanted to go, come home to Reno and say, say hi to everybody. And then I was going to go back up. So some girls drove up and they had drove through the night. So I drove their car back down. And at one point we were coming around one of these turns up in um, the mountain pass and somebody had come in our lane. And when I swerved, we hit some mud, we spun out and went off the cliff. Oh my goodness. And we went off the cliff and the car was flipping down into the canyon. I didn't have my seatbelt on. So I was all over the cab of the vehicle. Once we hit a tree, the tree ripped the driver's door off. And then I got kind of slingshotted out. And then eventually the car oh. caught up to me going down into the canyon, rolled over me twice. It rolled over me once and then I kind of got tangled up in it. And then it folded me in half against a bunch of trees. And the car carried on down into the canyon and the girls, everybody was safe. They all had their seatbelts on and everything. But they found me up on the hill with my right heel behind the back of my head. And I, I woke up to them calling my name. And once they got to me, she had to pull my leg out from under me because it was raining. My head was cocked back, so I was drowning. All the oh water was goodness. running down my nose. Luckily, when we went off, the guy behind, there was a guy behind us and he called 911 immediately. So I really only had to wait 15 minutes for a care flight, but it took them wow. about, it took them about 10 or more minutes to get down because it was, the grade was almost a straight drop. And oh my goodness. Um, by the time they got me on the, the cot, I, I bled out because I had a softball size hole in my skull. And my arm had almost got cut off completely. So I woke up in the hospital and thought I was in Reno because I had suffered some pretty bad frontal lobe damage. So my short-term memory was gone. My last right, memory right. when I was in the hospital was from three years prior. Wow. So they had to tell me what happened. Over, I spent a day on life support, three days in ICU. I had broken my right femur 
in about a dozen pieces. I powdered my pelvis all the way across. I broke both of my hips. I broke every single one of my ribs. I ruptured my spleen. I crushed my heart, my left lung. I crushed my skull. Like I said, a hole, but it, the, the crack itself started at the base of my skull and all the way up. Oh, my goodness. Right here. My arm, all the muscles and tendons were saved, but it was it was barely hanging on. And I think that I think that was everything. So the the people at Mercy Hospital in Reading were awesome. They did such a good job. Fast forward to coming home with brain damage, and I had gotten clean, and then I woke up in the hospital completely confused, getting pumped full of allotted. Then I was like, what the hell, man? Right. <laughs> get away from it. But you, so, I mean, you have to have that pain medication at the oh, same time because oh you God, can't survive absolutely. without it. So, you, you know, it's, oh my goodness. But in the hospital when I was in Reading, they told me, look, it's going to be three, it's going to be three years before you're on a walker. You're going to be in a wheelchair for at least a year and a half. You're never going to skateboard again. You're probably never going to run, jump, skip, you know, karate kick. But you'll probably get walking. So in the hospital there, I was I couldn't move my legs, but I would pull the I was pulling them up with my hands and then pushing them back down just to get movement. Right. Came to Reno in a wheelchair, ran away from my mom and dad's house in a wheelchair, and decided I was gonna try to take care of myself. And that's when oh. I got with who's now my wife. And she was like, What are you doing, man? Cause we knew each other from before and we had started talking when I came back home and she saw that I had left and I went to one of the hotels here in Reno and she had was working there and she's like, what are you doing? You can't be alone. Like, are you, what are you doing? And she was like, look, I will stick with you through all this, but not if you're going to dive back down. I can't do that. Cause she yeah. has her own recovery story that she had just, you know, she was doing right, well. Right. So I chose her and to give it a shot. She was an in-home care nurse prior to her job there. So she helped right. me get my legs moving. She knew I was going to try to get up before right. I was supposed to. So she tried to keep it safe. And it was supposed to be a year and a half in the wheelchair. And at six weeks, I stood up Wow! and started shuffling. And then at 10 weeks, I went back to work. Wow. Just at a warehouse, the the Tesla warehouse out here, and I still had all my hardware and those bolts in my knee and tailbone and all of that, and I've kind of recovered by just walking Tesla and working that, and went to the next step was to get a, a fabrication job because I was just trying to work my way back into woodworking. And yeah, I was like, <laughs> and at the, at the fabrication shop. I was feeling good. So I was like, you know what? I think I could probably skateboard again. So the funny story is I went out and went skating and was doing pretty well and got a little confident, fell and broke my hand. So jeez, oh, <laughs> it doesn't stop. <laughs> oh my God. So in that, my, my wife and I, we got married shortly after we got together and had our first daughter who's now four. Then got custody of my son, finally. Then we had our second daughter, who is now two, 
And then my wife has um, my stepson who's 12 from a past relationship. So we got our kids and then we, we just hit the ground running. Once we got, we were sharing a, a couch in the one bedroom apartment. And then we worked our way to my parents' house. Then from there wow. into, into our house. And then once we kind of got the reins in our hands, we're good. I, oh, the, the sobriety thing. So I'm um, sorry. I, I'm all over That's the place. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> so three months after the car accident, I wanted to get off the pain meds because I was already starting to abuse them. And I knew that yeah. that was just, you knew, bad. you knew. And my wife said, why don't you try getting on a Suboxone program? Ah, yeah. And so I went and talked to the only doctor here in Reno that has a program and got on that and it, it saved my life. That's amazing. That is so I know great. It's, it's difficult for people to to kind of understand the Suboxone thing because obviously doing abstinence recovery would be key, right? You would want no medications. You would want to, you right. would want to be able to do that. But but I'm these medications, can, yeah, these medications can be like you're you're an example. These medications can be lifesavers. And they are, you know, they can be so incredibly helpful because, you know, you're dealing with the neurochemistry of the brain and addiction affects that and it affects our motivation. It affects our decision making. And these drugs can, they can help with that. Absolutely. And it it did. And it, it served, whether it was a, a mental thing, it served as help with the pain. Yeah. Because although I was able to get up and walk and do all that very quickly. It didn't mean that it wasn't terribly painful. Um, right. And so that program was was huge for me. It was huge. And once we kind of moved past that and then we were working on, we both spent a lot of time in therapy and, and rehab. Mm -hmm. and so we would just constantly process every time either one of us was having a rough day, it was figured out. Yep. And that's that was the, the ingredients to success was just somebody to be completely genuine and honest with and the, the medications to just to just give you that that safety net if anything yeah absolutely and you pull all that's, those that's pieces together right you 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 pull therapy a supportive community medication you you pull all of it in and use all the tools you can get and plus, I'm Absolutely. just going to say your grit. I mean, you sound like a person that just has grit. Like you, you know, you, <laughs> you've got grit. And so with in combination with all those things, grit and, and all of these things, it sounds like you were really able to, you know, dig in and, and, and get recovery, you know, not just, Absolutely. not just sobriety, but recovery. Cause you, you got to do the, you got to do the mental work too, you know, which is hard. Yeah. Oh, that's the hardest part. Yeah, that's the hardest. Part. Yeah, it is. It really is, and you know, and then it gets into the the more the more juicy stuff, the good stuff. Where we're now in a position where we're good, our kids are are safe and happy, and now we're branching out and doing our best to start programs and trying to help as many people as we can. Yeah, and using whether it's my woodworking or my my wife's a, a professional makeup artist. And using those things to just help people and really just be honest with people and be like, 
and try to get them to just be honest with you. Yeah. And then point them, point them in the direction to just with zero judgment, because I think a lot of it, you know, there's so much shame involved in addiction, so much shame. It's so hard to be like, yeah, I did all of this stuff, but I'm trying, I want to get better. I do. I don't think I can, but I want to. Yeah. And having Um, that in a supportive environment, you know, getting rid of the stigma of addiction, you know, you telling your story does that, right? Because someone's going to hear this story and understand like, oh, you know, I was there too. And this this guy, this guy, Randall is talking about it and look, he's changed. He's done something different. Maybe I can have that hope too. And, and like, you yeah. know, there is hope. Yeah, you can. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's very important to, to try to level with people instead of going in, talking to a, a group of patients being like, look, I was, I was a drunk. Now I'm a millionaire. You can do it. Just do it. It's it won't. <laughs> right. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> let's take a different angle. Yeah, I, it's, it's really important. And there's a lot of people that want, that want the help, but they're just scared, man. They're just, scared. yeah. Yeah. Well, like you said, that Scary. shame, it, it keeps us from reaching out. You know, it stops us from, from, you know, getting the help because our own pride mm-hmm. and shame gets in the way. And so we don't do it and then we don't get the support we need. And, and we continue that cycle. And, and I think, like you said, it's like, you know, there are people out there that want to help you like you, you know, now. And I'm sure I would imagine there were people along this road that helped you too, you know, and had their own story. Absolutely. And that, and it was those, those little things, even if just a small gesture would get me through a week when I, when I was homeless out there, get me through two weeks, just being like, look, you know, maybe it's not all, not all terrible. And it's, it's the work that the people, like the work you guys are doing is huge, huge. These kinds of conversations are are so important to just keep this issue relevant and yeah. keep it in the forefront of everybody's mind because it's not it's not going to get better on its own. Nope. No. No, it won't. We we yeah, we have to do this work. And so kind of coming back around where we started our conversation just now now you're you're living it sounds like a life that you feel really good in. You know, not that it doesn't have problems mm-hmm. like life's problems still oh yeah problems still show up you know mm-hmm. they still show up but you you've got the resources and skills to manage them talk about them work them out figure them out yeah. it's huge and it's all it's all in remaining honest with yourself and if you can remain honest with yourself you can be honest with the person closest to you and then work your way out to being just honest with with anybody you talk to because there's nothing there's nothing wrong with the mistakes yeah. that you made is because you're trying to fix them that's the difference yeah. that's it might right. take a million tries dozens and dozens of tries but that one will stick so getting back into woodworking and then my wife doing the great work she's doing and in, in makeup and everything like that we're starting to build really good foundations for programs that we're trying to start and different music programs for the Washoe County School District and um, my wife is working with women that have suffered severe domestic violence and things of that nature. It's just taking all of that that energy because something people do forget about addiction and people that um, have drug issues is they are the most motivated people on on the planet. 
Yep. <laughs> they will do some things. And if you can just take a percentage of that, that momentum and put it towards something positive, whether it's your, just yourself or your health and your safety, and then work your way up to helping other people. Absolutely. So, big, big, so, big deal. Yeah. So we're on our time here. Um, one Ready? question and I, I love to ask, and I know you've listened to the podcast, so maybe you've heard this question before. Someone out there, they're struggling, they're hurting, they're in pain, they're in a, in a dark space, and you can tell them one thing, what would you want them to know? I'd want them to know that, yes, it's not just you. This sucks, and it's really, really hard. And no one is going to understand how hard it is. No matter how you try to explain it, no one's going to get it. But if you just accept the help and the security of the people around you that, that want to understand, and you just do it one step at a time, one little thing after another, it'll feel, it feels like a lifetime in the moment because this hole feels so deep, but your head's still above water. Oh, thank you. That's it. Thank you, Randall. And if people want to connect with you, how, how can they find you? What, what can they do? Yeah, let's see. I'm on Instagram at Rose Lee Woodworking. And TikTok is Randall Randall B. And Facebook is Randall Randall B. And awesome. Yeah, I'd love to, love to talk to anybody that wants to talk about helping people. Yeah, and I will put all those those links and, and that information in the show notes at theaddictedmind.com so you can check them out there. Randall, just thank you for doing what you're doing and, and coming on and sharing your story and, and letting your story help others out there. Absolutely. Thank you guys for what you're doing. This is it's a big deal. And I hope, hope we talk again soon and have some cool, cool new stories for you. Awesome, Randall. Thanks. All right, everyone, thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the links will be at theaddictedmind.com in the show notes. So go check them out. And if you got a lot out of this episode today, share it with a friend. And don't forget, click the subscribe button in whatever podcast app you use. Okay, have a wonderful rest of your day. And I'll talk to you on the next episode. I know. I know we've been taught that motherhood requires alcohol. I know we've been taught not to question our relationship with alcohol until we've lost everything. And I know we've been taught that if we do dare to examine our relationship with alcohol, we need to head straight to AA and declare ourselves an alcoholic who is powerless to alcohol forever. But what if all that isn't true? That's definitely not my story. I'm Suzanne, the host of the Sober Mom Life podcast. I'm an influencer who stopped drinking in January 2020, and since then, I've been telling the truth about motherhood, influencing, alcohol, and sobriety. If you suspect deep down that glass or three of wine at night might just be making motherhood harder, well, you're right. Come and join me as I chat with other sober and sober curious moms. Let's laugh, cry, and normalize sobriety together all while we reheat our coffee for the fourth time today.